Now let's turn back again in our Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew, <coughs> chapter 2, the passage that Crawford has read for us. And uh, we'll, I think, be studying these verses 1 through 12 or so uh, for the rest of our Advent series. Often thought that uh, nativity plays which I'm sure are much less frequent uh, this Christmas among children and in church Sunday schools. But I have often thought they would make uh, very good personality tests if you were a child psychologist or a child psychiatrist. You would find out a great deal about the children from the part they wanted to play. And since we're so egalitarian these days, I imagine... Uh, nowadays, anybody can play any part. But certainly in my day, there were just certain kinds of girls that wanted to play Mary. And because Mary was Mary and holding a doll, there were very few of us who were boys who wanted to play Joseph. Uh, it's not comfortable at seven years old to be stuck beside the toffee-nosed girl in the class who has won Mary's part. And then, if you were a girl, all that was left was becoming an angel. And certainly it wasn't cool to be a male angel uh, in my generation, which, as a boy, left you with either being a shepherd, running around, uh, disguised in some old rags, or the kind of pièce de résistance that you would get to be one of the three and there were always only three wise men. And uh, you had a crown, because apparently somewhere in the Christian tradition, the wise men had become kings, and you had gifts, and there were only three of you. And you could look down your nose at these motley shepherds, as in fact uh, people did in our Saviour's day as well. And I think there is no doubt that these wise men, whoever they were, are perhaps the most intriguing part of the nativity story. Of course, the central part is the conception, the birth of the Lord Jesus. The central characters are Mary and Joseph. Um, but shepherds are to a penny uh, in Palestine in those days. But wise men coming probably hundreds of miles from the east, there's something, there's something magical, which is, of course, what they're called in Matthew's gospel, the, the, the magi. There is really something magical and mysterious about these men. And so I want us to begin this afternoon looking at them by asking what used to be called the reporter's questions. If you were a, a junior reporter, you were taught about every situation, here are the questions you need to answer in your little report, and you would be given a list of them. And I want us to look at three of those questions this afternoon. Who, what, and why? Who were they? Why did they come is where we're going. 
But in order to get there, we've got to try and answer the question, what it was that they saw. Well, most of our translations tell us in verse 1 that they were wise men, and perhaps a footnote as in the English Standard Version will tell you that the Greek word is magi. They almost certainly came from around about the area of Babylon, where there was a predominance of magi. And if you look back, think back to the days of the Old Testament, days of the exile of God's people in Babylon, you remember that there was an entire university in Babylon where Nebuchadnezzar was training wise men, magi, and a number of these young Jewish teenagers who had been brought from Jerusalem were re-educated, interestingly, re-educated so that they would learn to think like Babylonians and they would grow in the wisdom of the Babylonians. And what they were trained in essentially was a kind of pre-scientific science. But that was true actually of all philosophers in antiquity. They were interested in everything. Archimedes, whom you remember, was actually a philosopher. Pythagoras, with his famous theorem, was a philosopher. And again, if you were my generation and went to university to study physics, you maybe studied what was called natural philosophy. So actually, until through about the 16th, 17th centuries, Every intellectual was essentially interested in everything. John Newton was an example, Isaac Newton. Interested in the Bible, interested in gravity, interested in alchemy, interested in astrology. And almost certainly these wise men fitted into that category. They examined the heavens... And they examined the earth because they thought that these realities were connected to one another. And in a sense, we still believe that, don't we? There, there are people at this time of year who struggle with what they call sad, don't they? That is, their, their, their experience of life is affected by the fact that there are too many afternoons like just now. And the lack of sunshine, lack of sunlight seems to have an, an impact on their personality. All kinds of ways in which we understand that there is a connectedness between our lives and, and the world around us. And these magi would have shared that perspective, only they would have taken it a little bit further. By believing that if you examined the heavens, or for that matter, examined animal life, you might be able to predict what would happen. A little like the weather forecasters. You, you watch what's happening and then you predict what is going to happen. Most famous example of that to most of us probably is Julius Caesar, isn't it? Um, the, the Magi of Rome had warned Caesar that something terrible was going to happen on the Ides of March. And you remember in Shakespeare's play, uh, is he, he's, he's, he's going into town, he sees the soothsayer, and he comments that the eyes of March have come. And the soothsayer responds to him, yes, but they're not gone. 
And uh, by the time they're gone, Julius Caesar is dead. And this is the kind of world that these men would have inhabited. And it was, this is such an interesting thing. It was because they inhabited that world that eventually they found Christ. It was because they inhabited that world that eventually they found Christ. Because it was by their interpretation of the heavens, this star that had arisen. It was because of the way they viewed the significance of that star that they found themselves eventually in Bethlehem and coming to meet Jesus Christ. And it's really a, it's a most remarkable thing, isn't it? Um, they're not like Mary and Joseph who, who know their Bibles, who know the promise even of a, a virgin conception, who know the promises of his future suffering, however, however little they may have been able to put all these things together. The absolutely amazing thing in the providence of God about these men is that they find Christ not because they know their Bibles, but because of the way they saw this star. Now, I imagine this Christmas as well, there'll be little articles in the magazines and newspapers and the journals, some of them very learned ones, explaining what this star was. Was it something God had created out of nothing in order to guide them? Or, as I think more likely, was it some natural phenomenon that was their world examining natural phenomena and trying to interpret the significance of it? And it leaves you, it leaves you wondering, doesn't it? By what means did they interpret this heavenly body as a sign to them that a new king had been born and that he was the, not just a, but the king of the Jews? All kinds of theories. It's absolutely marvelous theory if you like uh, uh, games like catchphrase. You know, where you're given two pictures and if you, if you understand the pictures, you'll come out with the catchphrase. That in fact, what they saw was a, a, a coalescence of Saturn and Jupiter coming together as one, as in fact happened very much around the time that they must have set off to find the king of the Jews. And uh, catchphrase... Jupiter and Saturn represented royalty and king and somewhere in the west. And in Babylon, somewhere in the west, was probably Palestine. And so they, they put two and two together. In Palestine, the king has been born. And yet, you know, whatever it was that they saw, whatever a phenomenon appeared in the sky. I'm almost certain there was something else that led them there. 
And I want us to try and think about that. What Matthew sees here, before we turn to that, what Matthew sees here is men who are Gentiles coming to the king. And Matthew expected that to happen. Every Bible-believing Jew knew that was going to happen. You know, we, uh, we love to sing in our tradition, in the Scottish Psalter, his name forever shall endure, last like the sun it shall. Men shall be blessed in him, Abrahamic promise, wasn't it? And in him all nations will be counted blessed. And a little picture of that had taken place in Solomon's life. That's actually probably why Psalm 72 that we love to sing is headed of Solomon. And we sing, if we sang the whole psalm, we sing about Seba and Sheba. Remember Queen of Sheba coming and coming with precious jewels and precious, precious ointments from further east to see the greatness of King Solomon. And it's clear by the time you get to Psalm 72 and other parts of the Bible that this becomes a picture of, not of Solomon, but of the great king God has promised whose rule will extend to the ends of the earth, that people will come to him from among all the nations. And so you see in a very clever way, really, Matthew bookends his gospel, doesn't he? He begins with people coming from the nations and finding Christ, and he ends with the apostles going to the nations to bring them to Christ. And so, from one point of view, these wise men are being caught up in something far bigger than they would ever have guessed as they began to follow this star. But as I said, I think there is more to this journey than meets the eye. Um, And I say that because they came from part of the world that must have known part of the Old Testament scripture. They came from the part of the world from which, you remember, the prophet Balaam had come. And the prophet Balaam had had prophesied really against his his will, against his better judgment almost, about this star that would be seen and this, this king that would come That was a man not from the heart of the schools of the prophets and the Old Testament. That was a man from the heart of this world. He was a pagan. He was a a, a a magus, a, a wise man. And yet just as God used this phenomenon in the heavens, he had used this pagan man on earth to speak forth his word. But even more certainly, it seems to me, there would have lingered on in the traditions that perhaps these men consulted in their great libraries 
among the scrolls of the greatest wise man that had ever been known in Babylon, who had come from the West, who had been taken there as a teenager in exile, and in whose day the mighty emperor Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed of a kingdom that would shatter all other kingdoms. And that man himself had told of visions he had of of the Son of Man receiving a kingdom from the Most High God and reigning with his people. And those things linger on in that kind of community in an astonishing way. Um, Just as in a sense, you know, none of us have seen Magna Carta, but we all know about Magna Carta because, although so relatively few of us will have seen it, one way or another it's passed on down through the tradition. I wonder if you've ever heard of the Sigan Fu Stone. The Sigan Fu Stone is about the size of those doors. It was discovered in China in 1625, but it was put up in China in the year 781, and it recorded the previous 150 years of Christian witness that nobody knew anything about. And it was there. I remember, I can't remember whether it was in his book, uh, Killing Fields, Living Fields, or when I heard him speak at a conference once, Don Cormack told of going into a refugee camp on Christmas Day to bring the people some food. This is in Cambodia. And he said, before we eat, I want to read a, a little story from my book. And he read the account of the feeding of the multitude from the Gospel of Matthew, and one of these people came over to him and said, was that the book of Matthew? My fathers believed in the God of the book of Matthew. And so, you see, if these, if these, men, had, if these men had been able to not only see the stars, but have these, these lingering traditions, shouldn't surprise us my, my guess now is the majority of people under a certain age in this country have never been in church. Never. They've never heard a sermon. They may never have seen a Bible. But if you scratch beneath the surface, it's amazing what lingers on from the tradition. And so you see, in this marvelous way, I mean, if you think about what God was doing so long ago through Balaam, through Daniel, and preserving little remnants of his word, and then through, we would call it the mistaken science. Let me put it this way. Even if this were a special creation of God, nobody on earth could say that star means that the king of the Jews has been born. Stars don't speak. Stars are not self-interpreting. And yet you see by their astrology. I mean, in a sense, this is, this is almost, I wouldn't surprise me if this happened. 
This is almost like somebody reading the astrology column in the papers to which our great scientific uh, 21st century news editors give more space than they ever give to the exposition of Scripture. But imagine you had read your horoscope in the astrology column and you're it happened to be the weekend and your eye looked down the page and there this little section, you know, with a verse from the Bible. And in the providence of God, what was in the stars for you prepared you for the word of God to come to you. And so we might say only half in jest there was a lot more to that star than met the wise men's eyes. This marvelous combination of what God does in providence, even when people are stumbling about in providence, and how he uses it to bring them to Scripture. My guess is if we, if we got locked in and thought, well, the best way to spend the rest of the afternoon is we'll just go around the room and Tell us how you came to faith in the Lord Jesus. At least in numbers of our lives, we would discover unusual divine providences that in and of themselves meant nothing. And yet, even sometimes in our stumbling, we stumbled onto them and we then, as it were, bounced back into Scripture. And of course, as the rest of the story goes on, it was only because they eventually bounced back into Scripture that they found the Christ. But let me turn to the third question. Why were they going? Let me, let me ask the question again. No show of hands, no speaking. I think we're allowed to speak. But... Why were they going? Why were they going? Answer because they saw the star. <coughs> wrong answer. How can I be so dogmatic? That's the wrong answer. Because not every wise man who saw the star went. I don't think we should think for a minute that these wise men huddled together, you know, in a kind of secret Kabbalistic society in Babylon or wherever, and said, let's keep this a secret to ourselves. They weren't the only ones looking at the heavens. They weren't the only ones looking in the libraries. I think we can safely assume that there were many wise men in Babylon saw the star and even interpreted the star exactly the same way these wise men did, but did not go. So why did these wise men go? I, I can think of many reasons why you wouldn't go. It's a long way. Camels, if they were on camels, it's the only thing you ever, they didn't walk, presumably. They went on the ships of the desert and maybe they were skilled camel riders. I can't imagine a thousand miles on a camel is a pleasant experience. The, the, think of your family. What's your wife going to say as the camel makes its way from the front door? And you say, honey, I've no idea when I'm going to be back. And I'm not absolutely certain where I'm going. 
the expense? I mean, did they crowdfund gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Those, those, are, those are gifts for a king, for royalty. Nobody in his right mind would think it was important enough that in this tiny country, remember, under Roman domination, under the ghastly Herod the Great, So why did they go? I think the answer is, if I can use a wonderful phrase that John Calvin uses quite frequently, about things that you can't just work out by pure logic. There's no logical reason why these men would go, whereas these other men wouldn't go. They went by what Calvin calls, although he doesn't use the phrase in this connection, so don't blame him for it, a secret instinct of the Spirit. That is to say, the Spirit of God was working in them. There really is no other explanation. Just like people may sit together listening to a sermon and one is caught up in the the message about Christ and wants to trust him and love him and the person right beside them who can be their best friend. Totally indifferent. I love that story of William Wilberforce taking his dear friend, uh, Pitt the Younger, William Pitt, He's maybe still the youngest prime minister this country has ever had. To hear, I think it may have been William Romaine, and them coming out and Pitt turning to him, and and Wilberforce was just overjoyed by the message. And Pitt said to him, what on earth was he going on about today, Wilberforce? What was he talking about? Why was he so excited? I just don't get it highly intelligent man. One of my professors told me he had actually looked up Pitt's exam results at Oxford. And he was a stellar student, supremely able, incredibly bright, prime minister at 20, whatever it was. But you see, he had one thing lacking and he didn't even know it was lacking. He was like Nicodemus saying to Jesus, what's all this about the kingdom of God? I don't see it. Saying to Jesus, I'm not blind, but in the next sentence saying to Jesus, I'm as blind as a bat. And we can only assume, I think, that the spirit of God was working irresistibly upon them. They didn't know all they were doing any more than we did when we took our first baby steps to the Lord Jesus Christ. But there was this irresistible urge that we, we couldn't even understand. And the Spirit brought us to him. I remember a, a young woman Uh, who was a research scientist in uh, a university near the church I served in Glasgow. 
and we had we had lunch hour services on Wednesday that were they were teaching from scripture, but they had an evangelistic edge to them for passers by in the city centre. And at the end of a season, this young woman came up to me at the end and she handed me a very thick envelope. Now, you know, once you've been a minister for a wee while, you, you get a bit nervous when people hand you thick envelopes and say nothing except, I'd like you to read that. You do not know what's coming. And I had no idea what was coming. Except what came was a story of a young research scientist in her lab at the university hearing the church bell toll at one o'clock, but not going gong as it did every other day of the week, and then silence, but ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing, and it was quite deliberate that we rang the bell. It was the Christian version of Dick Whittington. Something's going on here. And eventually it twigged with her. This was a summons to come. Something was happening. And she said, I resisted it. I sat stolidly at my bench and I resisted it. And I resisted it and I was not going to go. Whatever it was, I didn't know who these people were. I knew this was the church less than half a mile away from my bench. And then she said, one day I found myself sitting in the church. I have no idea how I got there. You know what it's like? You drive sometimes on the highway for 10 miles and you see something. You think, how did I get on these last 10 miles? I haven't noticed anything. She'd got up from her bench, got her coat, walked down the road, come into the church, sat down in the pew, and she'd come to faith in Jesus Christ. It was, it was a wise... It, actually, the university was to the east. It was like the wise woman among the magi in the university. And fascinatingly, by what was in some ways the voice of brass was brought to the voice of Christ, just like these wise men. You know, I would have loved to have been what the equivalent of a fly on the wall is when people are riding on a camel. Maybe it's a fly on a camel's hump to listen to these men on the way home, having found the king of the Jews. Having, I know the text doesn't explicitly say this, but the text does make it clear that they stayed overnight and what it would have been to have been a fly on the wall of the house listening to these wise men with all their learning, all their experience, all the wisdom of the East with them, sitting humbly asking this teenage girl and her carpenter husband to tell them more about the King of the Jews. And if you're a Christian, in a way, that's your story too, isn't it? It is a wonderful thing, isn't it, to look back on the mystery of God's providence in your life, the way in which happenstances seem to work together, the way even in which you 
you thought wrongly about something and, and, and it's amazing. It's only because you thought, thought wrongly about something that you then began to think about the gospel. And in a hundred different ways, thousands of different ways, millions of different ways down through history, God has continued to do this kind of thing. No one comes to me, says Jesus, except the Father draw him or her. And this is one of those marvelous, magical scenes in the New Testament scriptures right at the beginning that proclaims in picture language what Jesus proclaims with words in the last three verses of the gospel. That to the ends of the earth and to the end of the world, this story is not only going to be told and retold, but it's going to be repeated in different versions in the experience of endless, endless millions. Because when the king comes, all nations will be blessed in him. The promise given to Abraham that began the story of Matthew's gospel. This is the son of Abraham. The promise that had been given about the son of David, not Solomon, but the great king who was still to come. And here were these pagans with little Bible in their background with a lot of confused thinking in their foreground. And yet in his wonderful grace and providence, God had worked his way, working these things together for their good in order that they might be brought to faith in Jesus Christ and to worship him. And it's meant to be a mirror for us to gaze into and to ask do we know anything of this? Or even if we are in the church, are we, are we as indifferent as the wise men who stayed at home? Or do we know something looking back on our lives about the irresistible drawing of God's Spirit that has brought us with all of our treasures to trust in Jesus Christ, to bow down before him as they do, and to worship him. Well, what a great gospel this is. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that the day is coming when not only because we read it in the scriptures, but because we will see it with our own eyes, that the whole world of the nations will give out praise to you. And people from every tribe and tongue and language, people from every ethnicity, people at the last from every neighborhood will surround your throne with endless, endless stories as perhaps we're able to ask one another, so how did you get here? We think about these wise men and their story. Think about all the stories that follow in this gospel. We think even of the story of the man crucified beside Jesus who looked to him with his last breath and recognized that he was the king and he is there too. 
Oh, Lord, in these days that so depress, so cause anxiety and fear, so cause puzzlement, we pray that we, by your grace, may see the glory of the gospel, the success of the gospel, the power of the gospel, the internationalism of the gospel, the eternal nature of the gospel. And enable us by that gospel, we pray, to live with confidence and in faith. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.